Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the pandemic triggered a pet boom in the U.S., and with it, the demand for veterinary care. But the profession, even before COVID, was dealing with overwhelming caseloads, long hours, and a level of emotional strain that many believe contribute to a high rate of suicide among veterinarians. This hour, we look at why providing medical care to dogs, cats, and other animals that bring well-being to their human companions can take such a toll on veterinarians and vet technicians. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you adopted a pet during the pandemic, you're not alone. Surveys find pet ownership in the U.S. rose significantly as lockdowns made it possible for the first time or sparked deep needs for animal companionship. But the pet boom has also meant more kittens and puppies needing checkups, shots, spay and neutering, among other services, adding stress to a profession already grappling with sometimes crushing levels of stress. Veterinarians and vet techs report higher rates of poor mental health and have higher rates of suicide than the general population. This hour, we try to understand why, and joining me is Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, president of the San Francisco SPCA and a practicing veterinarian. Dr. Scarlett, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me and, and covering this topic. Also with us is Dr. Melanie Goebel, founding member of Not One More Vet, an organization dedicated to the mental health issues of practicing veterinarians. She's also a relief veterinarian. Dr. Goebel, really glad to have you on as well. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned, Dr. Goebel, the checkups, the shots, the surgeries, but in addition to those medical treatments, veterinarians do a lot more. They play many roles. Can you start by just helping me understand the scope of a veterinarian's work? Oh, well, there's a lot there. So when we look at the day-to-day of a small animal veterinarian like myself, um, we are not only doing the exams and the diagnosing and um, the education of the client, but we are also being all of the doctors So when you go to a specialist in human medicine, you might see, you know, 15 different people to cover each different organ system. And although we have those specialists as well, the average veterinarian does all of that on a regular basis. Um, And then we also are sitting there and working with the clients and helping them come to terms with whatever diagnosis we've given. Um, We end up being counselors in many ways, not professionally, obviously, but we listen to a lot of Um, their struggles and um, they're working through what they're doing. We end up being financial counselors. Um, You know, we, we have to do a little bit of everything and our technicians and assistants do that as well. I mean, without them, our job is even harder, but 
we have to do the entire gambit of roles. Um, we don't always have somebody else to share that with. And then if you're looking at our large animal veterinarians, they're also protecting our food supply. Um, and we have a lot of people in public health. Um, I believe the CEO of Pfizer is a veterinarian. So, you know, veterinarians all assisted in um, getting us vaccines for COVID and understanding how it all works. So we do a little bit of everything and we have to be a jack of all trades in, in the grand scheme of things. And sometimes you're doing a little bit of everything back to back, meaning like on different ends of the spectrum, right? As a small animal veterinarian, Dr. Goble. Oh, definitely. We, I was just talking to someone the other day about the emotional whiplash that we go through. Uh, yesterday I had a euthanasia followed by an eight week old new puppy exam, followed by another euthanasia, followed mm -hmm. by a 13 week old puppy exam, and then a kitten exam and another euthanasia and then a, a cancer diagnosis. And it's just ping pong. Mm -hmm. uh, we just go back and forth with everything and, you know, talking about not only the disease, but what to expect from it. We talk about what to expect of just having a new puppy and how to avoid behavioral issues and um, how to plan financially for all of the things that are going to come mm -hmm. forward, either in the life of a pet normally or when they do get sick. So yes, it's a little bit of everything back to back. Dr. Scarlett, what's it like at basically the, the vet medical care provided by the SPCA, I imagine a larger entity. And, and I'm also curious how the pandemic uh, has affected your work. Yeah, things are incredibly busy. We were able to stay open every day throughout the pandemic um, and stay open for emergencies and new clients. And um, our teams were just <clears throat> absolutely inundated. And on top of doing everything back to back, what COVID did is that it, it decreased productivity in veterinary hospitals by about um, a quarter, 25%, the curbside pickups, the extra sanitation, the call outs. And so you have this, this enormous backlog of deferred care. Um, and so, you know, even though, um, you know, even though our teams are, are working like crazy, we were unable to catch up and that's been seen across the city. We're also starting to see the impact of um, the veterinary shortage, which is you know, compounded by this attrition and mental illness and suicide rates um, in our sheltering world as well. So it has, it has compound effects. Yeah, it's a really hard time staffing for this backup of deferred care that you're describing. I do understand though, Dr. Goble, that there, there are some silver linings that COVID brought. You've talked about how with curbside, for example, you could focus often on just the animals and, and limit interaction sometimes with clients. Well, yes, definitely. Now, you know, we, as a veterinarian, I love working with my clients, but most veterinarians did go into this because of our love for the animals and people come with a lot of extra stressors. <laughs> so when the animals were able to come in by themselves, uh, we could be our true selves with those animals. We didn't have to keep that super professional facade up all the time. And we didn't have to compartmentalize quite as much. Um, you know, we did when we had to talk to the owners, but we were able to just snuggle for a couple of seconds when we needed it. Uh, and I, in all honesty, I think most of the animals really loved it a lot more um, because hmm. they aren't picking up on their owner's 
stress and anxiety of coming into the veterinary clinic. Mm. I, I want to unpack that a little bit more, just because one of the things that I read, uh, Dr. Scarlett, was that one of the biggest stressors for veterinarians have been the expectations of pet owners not often meeting with reality and also complaints that they they get. And in fact, uh, I have a listener writing in who writes, I work at a vet clinic and have to deal with horribly rude people. All I ask is to please have some patience and empathy for those working in the veterinary field. Yes, I know your pets are very important to you and we're trying our best to help clients and pets and assure we're capable of providing adequate care. And this field is also lower paying than human medicine. Sometimes we're paid minimum wage and our job has many roles. We're both nurses, receptionists, janitorial staff and have a lot going on between patient care and client interactions and we're trying our best. Can you talk about that? Do you find that clients are some of the biggest parts of the, the human clients are the biggest parts of a veterinarian stress level? <laughs> they are, you know, one of the things that, that our veterinarians do is that they want to rotate through the shelter med and, and away from clients occasionally. Um, and, it, you know, it's completely understandable, but I also have to put myself in the client's shoes and think about, you know, at this point, um, it's very difficult to get an appointment. And if, heaven forbid your animal is sick, the, the, the time that you're going to be waiting for an emergency exam can be extremely lengthy and you're scared, right? You're, you're scared about, you're worried about your animal and you're worried about the cost and all of that starts to bubble up. But that said, <clears throat> there's no doubt that our teams as well as veterinary hospitals throughout the, the nation have just suffered extreme um, insults and, and abuse from clients at the same time. So and that factors into um, what we're talking about today. You know, there was a study several years ago about the number of veterinarians that suffer from cyberbullying. Um, mm. And so this the impact um, and feeds into the shortage because veterinarians have twice the attrition rate as, as physicians. Well, Melanie Goble, first of all, have you experienced that kind of sort of abuse that Jennifer Scarlett is describing? Uh, yes, unfortunately, I have. Um, and it has not all been just because of COVID and the pandemic. Um, it has certainly exacerbated it. Uh, but my fourth day as a veterinarian in practice was the Friday of 4th of July weekend, 2005. And I didn't run a test that wasn't necessary for one of my patients. And the client told me that I should be dead that I should mm. kill myself, that I was not worth the air I was breathing, that I should never have been given a license. And he just screamed at me for five, 10 minutes. And I had no idea what to do. I mean, I was a young vet. I still didn't know who I was as a person really. Um, and I just stood there and took it. And then I said, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Here's your dog. <laughs> oh. And then I went into the treatment area and I burst into tears. And I had a full two minutes before I had to go back to the rest of my clients. Um, and I've had people threaten to kill me. I've had people threaten to blow up my car. Um, I've had coworkers and colleagues that have received death threats. Um, and it's usually for something that's not a life or death situation to begin with. I'm so sorry to hear that happened to you. Do you feel like there is less respect for people, 
for doctors who work with animals, who treat and provide medical care to animals? I think in general, there is a huge respect for veterinarians and for veterinary staff. Um, it's just that those people that aren't very respectful uh, take up a lot more space in our brains. So if it's just one person that is a jerk for the day, that person could actually affect you for a week. I mean, I still tear up when I think about this gentleman from 2005. <laughs> um, and it, it affects you. And it's hard to back away from that and say, you know what, that's about them. That's not about me. Um, because it felt like a personal attack. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when we, when someone questions our ethics and our compassion and our care, that just strikes the heart of us as it does to anyone. Well, Rachel writes, they're super sensitive, empathic people. They have delicate souls that can have a hard time in our harsh world. We're talking about veterinarians and, and vet techs and some of the disturbing statistics about veterinarians and vet techs experiencing mental health struggles and even higher rates of suicide than the general population. We're talking with Dr. Melanie Goebel, founding member of Not One More Vet, um, also a relief veterinarian, and Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, president of the San Francisco SPCA and practicing veterinarian. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Are you a veterinarian or vet tech? Have you experienced these challenges? Or if you're hearing these things for the first time, what is your reaction to what you're hearing? Call us 866-733-6786. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about growing understanding of a mental health crisis in veterinary medicine, and we're joined by Dr. Melanie Goebel, founding member of Not One More Vet, an organization dedicated to mental health issues for those practicing veterinarian medicine, also a relief veterinarian, and Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, president of the San Francisco SPCA and a practicing veterinarian. And I want to bring into the conversation now Susan Cohen, a licensed social worker who runs an online support group for veterinarians with the VIN Foundation Vets for Vets program. Uh, Susan Cohen, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. As I'm listening to Melanie and and Scarlett, Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, describe what what they see as veterinarians in addition to the medical care that they provide, I'm struck by something that you said you've encountered in your groups a lot, and that is often veterinarians saying, I chose vet med 
over human med because I like animals more than people. And it's making me wonder if that's connected to what Melanie was saying before the break about how, you know, really difficult and painful interactions with other humans can really stay with a vet. Have you found that? You know, I, I would agree with uh, what the previous speaker said that I think most veterinarians don't dislike people. It's that most veterinarians will tell you proudly that they're introverts. That doesn't mean that they don't enjoy ever being around people, but it's draining for them. So if you're the kind of person who thinks you're going into kind of a lab situation where uh, you'll just be dealing with animals and uh, you know doing science, uh, and no one has told you that it's a heavy touch kind of business with, as we've heard, uh, one minute it's a happy puppy or kitten visit and the next minute it's a you know heartbreaking kind of decision. Uh, and if people are telling you their problems and you're not quite sure why, I would argue as a social worker that they're trying to convey information about their personal lives and how that's going to affect care of the pet. But at any rate, um, you know, it's just not something that you were uh, in your heart of hearts uh, drawn to and maybe weren't taught in school. I think most veterinary colleges now have some sort of human relations training. Uh, but when I started almost 40 years ago now, there was zero. And I think it, my sense is it's still the case that people don't quite understand how much of the job is really going to be not only dealing with clients, but dealing with coworkers. Mm. Well, the other thing that uh, Dr. Goebel mentioned uh, was cyberbullying. And that's come up a lot as well in your support groups, right? That social media can really prolong the hostility from an interaction with a client. Yes, it's uh, sad to say, but as much as social media has brought us all together, it has allowed um, not nice people to get at you in your most private life, in your work life. And I, I've heard stories of not only your client, who maybe you saw once, uh, threatening, you know, I will destroy you on social media if you don't do this for me. They have their friends and relatives who've never met you write terrible reviews and so on. Uh, it is a serious problem. And of course, we can only mostly control ourselves in our own working environment. We can't necessarily stop clients from doing what they're doing uh, unless we're willing to take them to court. But it is a, a terrible situation for a group of people who have huge hearts and big brains and a real desire to make life better for uh, animals and people as well to, to take this kind of abuse. Yeah. Well, we have co more comments coming in, and you can post those listeners on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or email us forum at kqed.org, in addition to calling 866-733-6786 if you'd like to join the conversation. Sam writes, my husband is a vet and was just saying this morning how he didn't want to go to work because he was facing three euthanasias today. He had a rough day yesterday and didn't sleep last night as a result. I don't think he ever really sleeps. I would never have encouraged him to go into veterinary 
veterinary medicine if I'd known the huge emotional, mental, and financial toll the profession takes. I'm continually horrified by how awful people are to veterinarians. I work in human health care, and the standards of performance for vets are such a stark contrast. My husband has to provide clinical care to his actual patients and financial and emotional counseling to clients in every single encounter. Uh, Jennifer Scarlett, I, I wanted to ask you about this a little bit more, just in terms of the unique challenges posed by by euthanasia as a regular part, often of a veterinary practice, and that combined with um, people who really don't understand what animal health care costs and, and just working through all of those things together. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's complicated. The the profession is kind of on its head right now. It's being it's going through a massive consolidation. The cost of providing care is very very high, and there's a very low percentage of pet owners who have pet insurance. So you're having this financial discussion almost with every interaction. And with that is economic euthanasia. In other words, I'm I'm having to let this animal go that may have a treatable condition because the cost of care is too high. Mm-hmm. And then there is the humane euthanasia, which in in my view is is really a gift to be able to have that dignity at the end of life. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the economic euthanasia, the um, I can't afford to treat this, and so I have to let this animal go. And I just want to salute um, Dr. Cohen and the work of Vets for Vets, as well as um, the veterinary medical, um, I'm sorry, the veterinary mental health uh, initiative and um, not one more vet because they're doing such incredibly pioneering work in our field to support our veterinarians through this. And it's going to take so many different avenues from immediate care to our vets, to thinking about how we work in the veterinary space um, and long-term how we bring people into this into this field and support more of, of the need and, and demand. So um, it's very complicated at this point. Well, the listener writes, if you choose to bring a pet into your life, please get pet insurance and please be kind to your vet. Most vets are high quality providers who are not making a huge amount of money and aren't trying to cheat you. Vet techs are high quality, hardworking, underpaid professionals. Be polite and try not to put emotional labor onto your vet offices. I, I, I'm wondering, Melanie Goble, what, what it's like when people say they want to euthanize a healthy pet or an animal that can be saved, but they can't afford the medical treatment. It's reminding me of a conversation I've had in the past with with a writer about morally compromising jobs and the impact that that has. And I hadn't really thought about it in relation to, to this with veterinarians. Yeah, it's, it's hard. So there is actually a study that was done in 2012 that said 91% of veterinarians um, that were polled faced an ethical or moral dilemma every week and it caused them a great deal of stress. Um, I myself, when it comes to these um, ethical questions and the the financial side of euthanasias and so forth, you know, I really had to put a lot of me into a box. Um, and when it comes down to it, when someone says, I can't afford to do this, um, I do have that conversation of what does that actually mean? You know, and I tell people flat out, if by treating this pet, you're going to not be able to feed your family, you're going to lose the roof over your head, then no, you should not treat the pet. We should euthanize it. I can't, I couldn't live with myself knowing that I bankrupted someone um, with their pet. 
Uh, sometimes we are able to arrange for the animal to be taken into um, a shelter situation or a foster situation um, where we can get them the help that they need and be able to move on. Uh, early in my career, I said no. And for a cat that was urinating out of the litter box and the people wouldn't even check to see if it had a bladder infection and if it would just be treated with antibiotics. And uh, I sent them out the door. I did not euthanize and the pet ended up dying a horrible death because they threw it out the window and it got hit by a car. Um, so I really, I have a hard time saying no mm. because I would rather let that animal die a peaceful death than to have it die a tragic one. Mm. I'm so, wow, that is just heartbreaking. Uh, Eileen tweets, how can the number of veterinarians be increased in light of, you know, the, the stresses that come with it. But Eileen is also wondering about the enormous cost of vet school and dollars and time. This is something that's been coming up in both in, in the comments that we've been reading and both you, Melanie, and, and Dr. Scarlett have been talking about with regard to um, the stresses associated with veterinary care, how much is debt, and especially student debt, a problem, Jennifer Scarlett? The average student debt is about $150,000. Um, and this, this question is a good one because what we have is uh, an acute on chronic shortage of veterinarians. In other words, um, it's been building up over time since 1978. Only five or six veterinary schools have been added, yet the population of the United States has increased by 100 million. And so we could see this deficit coming. And then with COVID, as well as you know, this ongoing stressor of being short-staffed, not only in veterinarians, but veterinary nurses, technicians, um, it's exacerbated. And to the point where about, I don't know, a recent AVMA survey showed that over 30% of veterinarians want to cut their hours by a third. So you know, there's estimates out there that you know, today we have a shortage of 5,000 veterinarians by 2030, it's, it's forecasted to be over 14,000. So we have to do something. Um, unfortunately, veterinary schools are expensive and most of the, the traditional ones have a teaching college. So it's very difficult for them to expand the class size. So you're seeing the newer classes or newer schools being what's called dispersed education. They can, they can students and disperse them out to different facilities for their clinical training. But we have to have several other things in place because starting a vet school takes years to get going and then four years until you matriculate your first class. We need an extender position like a physician's assistant. We need to boost our nurses, our technicians to a level that they can do more to support doctors. Um, and we have to think about our workflows. Again, this is so important that we have to do a number of things in parallel. And again, I just can't salute my colleagues enough for the, the efforts that they're doing with the mental support um, that they're giving to veterinarians at this time. It's gonna take a combination of things to, to overcome this deficit. Mm. Well, on the line now, we have Dr. Cherise Sullivan, president of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, and Dr. Sol Sullivan also practices general veterinary medicine. Cherise Sullivan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We, we were talking just now about the need to to try to recruit more vets because of, of veterinary uh, 
doctor shortages and so on. And I understand that this is not a diverse profession. And I'm wondering if you could shed light on the challenging experiences that that comes with, especially for black veterinarians or other vets of color. Yeah, so um, currently black veterinarians uh, represent about uh, 1% of the um, veterinary population. And um, our profession is um, over 90% um, white or Caucasian. So um, that definitely doesn't reflect our US population, which is 58% white. Um, or Caucasian and and uh, MCBMA is trying to um, support those who are uh, people of color, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color within the profession, and um, and just help them um, navigate uh, the profession and lead the veterinary medicine towards uh, racial, ethnic, racial and ethnic diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So how does this lack of diversity sometimes translate in terms of client interactions, Dr. Sullivan? Yeah, so we know in, in human medicine that um, there are disparities when it comes to cross-cultural communication and that those patients that um, have uh, physicians who are not of the same ethnicity or who are in some way not related to the ethnic background of that patient, they have worse outcomes. And we can imagine that 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 would translate uh, to our um, animal patients as well. And the difference between us and them is that we have that third barrier, um, which is um, the client. Um, so in order for us to treat that pet, we have to be able to communicate with that client. And if we're not able to have these cross-cultural communications and um, be aware of differences that people have when it comes to um, euthanasias, diets, um, you know, it's, it's a huge range of things um, that we're not going to be able to really fully treat that pet what advice do you find yourself giving most often in support groups and so on when you talk with people about the challenges they face? So most often when I'm in support groups, uh, I'm, I'm talking to other people of color and there are a wide range of things that um, they have concerns about and, you know, have the concerns of all people within our profession when it comes to student loan debt, burnout, et cetera. But then there's also these sort of compounded issues that sort of linger on our shoulders as well. Um, and that really is just uh, racism. And, you know, we really have to think of racism as a mental health issue. Um, racism cause, causes racial trauma and um, just about every veterinarian that I've spoken to has, has had some degree of racial trauma within our profession. Um, microaggressions are a form of racial trauma. Uh, I've had, you know, I was just recently in a, in a, in a, um, a forum uh, workshop where we were talking to veterinary specialists and, you know, there were three of us who went to the same school and we were probably about gosh, somewhere between 20 years apart um, from the first one to the last one and maybe 
10 years um, in the middle. And all of us had the same experience of being told that we didn't deserve to be at the school and we didn't deserve the opportunities that we earned um, um, to get there. So, so yeah, um, you know, in addition to that, there are major traumas that affect your mood on, you know, a, a regular basis. Um, you know, having to go to school after things like the killing of unarmed black women and men, um, and you're expected to go to school or go to work the next day, like nothing happened and nobody talks about it and nobody checks in on you or, you know, offers you a, a mental health day. So these are sort of all the things that um, specifically um, BIPOC veterinarians are facing. And Susan Cohen, we're coming up on a break, but it also sounds like this is a rather isolated profession. Often veterinarians are like in a small or, or solo practice too, where you can't have those kinds of conversations and the empathy that's needed. I think that's true. Um, veterinarians are mostly all alone in that exam room, uh, even if they have colleagues. You know, you, you're facing whatever you're facing by yourself. And we've been hearing how busy practices are. There's not time really to stop your friend in the hall and say, hey, I've got this uh, problem with this case or I'm having a bad day. No one wants to look foolish in front of their peers. If you were to call a friend at a different practice and confess that you're going through a bad time, what if you want to get a job at that place and now they know this secret about you? It's very difficult. That's why I'm, I'm delighted to hear about Dr. Sullivan's support groups. We have the one at uh, Vets for Vets. Uh, there are others out there where people can get peer support uh, in a safe, confidential way. It's not going to affect their their job. Yes, a reluctance to come forward is is something that I'm hearing you describe. We're talking with Dr. Susan Cohen, a licensed social worker who runs an online support group for veterinarians. Dr. Cherie Sullivan, president of the Multi Multicultural Veterinarian Medical Association and veterinarians, Dr. Melanie Goebel and Dr. Jennifer Scarlett. You, our listeners, are with us and we'll have more with you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the challenges unique to veterinary medicine. 
that are leading people to leave the profession or experience significant mental health struggles. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts on this. Susan writes, I'm lucky I have the very best veterinarian. Many people say to me, but they're so expensive. And it irks me because vets have to pay for their medicine, staff, rent and equipment, just like any other doctor. They need to get paid just like other doctors. People think because they work with animals, they should work for free. And that's just wrong. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, a pres president of the San Francisco SPCA, Dr. Melanie Goebel, founding member of Not One More Vet, Dr. Susan Cohen, a licensed social worker who runs an online support group for veterinarians, and Dr. Cherie Sullivan, a veterinarian who's also president of the Multicultural Veterinarian Veterinary Medical Association. You are joining the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. And let me go to Julie in Salinas. Hi, Julie. Hi. I have two questions. One is um, I'm aware that other healthcare providers, such as dentists, medical doctors, uh, et cetera, um, have a higher rate of suicide ideation and attempts than the general public as well. And I'm wondering if uh, the rate for dentists, how that compares to those other professions. Is it mm. the same? Is it less? Is it greater? Et cetera. The other thing um, is that uh, as a social worker who has worked in oncology and other uh, forms of medical care. I'm wondering if the veterinarians there have considered hiring a social professional licensed social worker onto their staff or perhaps contracting with an independent uh, clinician to provide similar kinds of services to their patients and families and staff that social workers provide uh, in uh, both private medical practices and in hospitals, such as uh, psychosocial care and financial advice yeah. and being a liaison, et cetera. Well, Julie, like it thanks. It would be really helpful. Dr. Goebel, do you have any thoughts for Julie? I do. So the we don't have comparative numbers of veterinary suicides compared to um human medical suicides and so forth. Um, but we do know the relative risk of death by suicide of veterinary professionals compared to the general public. Um, so for male veterinarians, we're at 1.6 times more likely to die by suicide. Um, female veterinarians is 2.4 times. Female technicians is 2.3 times. And male technicians is actually close to five times a higher relative risk of death by suicide. Um, now, part of that is that when we look at the numbers of veterinarians and the numbers of technicians, they're relatively small numbers based on larger populations. Um, so even the, um, the studies that were done for dentists, those were from a Scandinavian country. I can't remember which one at this time, but um, their number of veterinarians or of dentists was extremely small. And so when you have one suicide, that is... Um, a big percentage in comparison for when you're looking at the, the uh, field of, of work. Um, but though they do have high numbers as well. And many times in human medicine, if a person dies via suicide at a hospital, for example, it's not always listed as a suicide. So I don't even know that we have true numbers mm. for that. 
Um, there are definitely a lot of people uh, or a lot of clinics that do hire social workers um, and in veterinary medicine, but you're normally looking at the larger clinics, um, the referral centers, um, things like that. I would love it if we could get, you know, a social worker for a county um, of, of clinics that they could go to, but because the profit margins on vet clinics are so small, um, your general one or two doctor practice would not be able to afford to have a licensed social worker. Um, but I do love the social workers that work with the veterinary profession. I have been thankful to have worked with a number of them. Melanie Goble, as we've been discussing, and as we know generally, the reason that someone may take their life is often very complicated and with multiple factors. Some we've addressed today, there have been some suggestions and reports that some of the high rates might be, or what might be contributing to it, is that veterinarians do have access when they're at a particularly vulnerable moment to lethal drugs. Do you think that's a factor? There is. That is... Um definitely has been studied. And if we remove for veterinarians, if we remove those that die via suicide from euthanasia medications, um, if we take those out, the numbers are the same as the general public. So having access is a, a big component. Mm -hmm. And uh, the studies also show that if you remove a primary um method of suicide, then most people that are looking at that method do not go to another method. Uh, so by making a way and having a way to prevent uh, easy access, uh, that is definitely a way that we can improve things. I just want to take a moment to remind listeners that in the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 at one 800 273 8255. And I thank my producer, Grace, for sending me that number. Let me go to caller Irene in Sacramento. Hi, Irene. Hi. Um, three things. I'm a nurse, human nurse, and listening to your program, it's amazing. I'm very distressed. And I have three things to recommend. Number one, contracts are really good. So if the veterinary and for that matter of human clinics had a short document saying this is a contract between you and us and if you sign it you will get service you need to be respectful patient and whatever other words they want to say if you agree to this we will uh, do the best we can to treat your pet professionally and kindly and in a timely manner the person signs fine and and then say also in that contract we will not tolerate you know, bullying, abuse, uh, threatening, bad cussing, etc. And then, you know, have somebody draft a document. They don't need an attorney for that, you know. Second thing is that when I used to work at the AIDS Project in San Diego, we had mandatory uh, meetings, everybody in a group with a psychiatrist, whether we had things to share or not. But this was in the uh, early, uh, late 18, uh, I mean, 1980s, um, beginning of 90s and it was a very stressful time for all the staff we saw a lot of patients die and just listening to one another in a group setting mm. helped the rest of the group uh, understand what everybody else was doing because everybody had you know we're working a different department and the third yes. thing that mm -hmm. i want to say is that 
perhaps the, the insurance companies, both for pets and especially for humans, if they, uh, if they could uh, find out which person has a pet, and pets are known to reduce stress in people mostly, they could reduce the policy of that person or family, and then that money could be maybe allocated to insurance and treatment for pets oh. that may be ill. Well, Irene, I appreciate that you're presenting so many potential solutions. Danny, our engineer, actually writes, recently I had to take my cat fandom to a veterinary emergency group in San Ramon at 11 p.m. at night when Phantom was blocked. Everyone was great and it was really busy. Thank goodness for pet insurance. It was a positive experience, except for the scars on my arm. Phantom was not happy about that. But but, uh, Dr. Sullivan, I do want to get your reaction to some of the things that Irene is saying, especially with regard to a bill of rights between patients or some kind of a contract, you know, some kind of a contract that you make that's mutually agreed upon in terms of how you treat each other. Yeah, I actually think it's a great idea. Um, I'm in the process of opening up my clinic and I'm like about to steal her idea. (laughs) So, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that we really do need to, um, stand up to, um, the abuse from some of these clients, you know, we are, we're people as well. Um, and we have feelings and when we tolerate that type of behavior, we really contribute to, um, burnout and fatigue of our staff and, Um, It makes everyone feel like they're, you know, less valued. So I definitely would recommend um, by minimum, at least setting up some core values Mm. for each clinic where things like that aren't tolerated and, and, um, and, you know, clients that are, are, that cross the line are dismissed from the practice. Um, I've had, you know, in my experience and then also in the experience of other veterinarians, um, where, you know, racial slurs have been said in the exam rooms, um, they have asked to see another doctor said that they didn't want to see the black doctor or the doctor or the Indian doctor with accents or all these things. And, Um, There are some practices who allow those types of clients to continue to be clients of the practice um, and let them see whoever they want to see instead of saying, hey, this is um, not something that we're going to tolerate. We're we're diverse, we're inclusive, and if you don't like that, then you need to find another practice. And I know, uh, Dr. Scarlett, that you have been alluding to some structural changes that you think would be really helpful for the profession. If you wanted to just highlight a couple before we cut away briefly. Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's, um, it, is a, it is a profession that is in a great deal of, of change. Um, but some of the things that, you know, that we try to do is you heard Dr. Goebel talk about going from one exam where you're, it's I'm talking about you know youth and and vigor and um, a puppy or kitten to a euthanasia is trying to as best we can um, put those euthanasias at the end of the day and prepare our staff for you know this is you know and and have some more control now that is not always possible sometimes you make a diagnosis in the moment and it is highly emotional um, the other things that we have to think about because this shortage is going to be severe is. Um, you know, how we allocate veterinary time. In other words, with this shortage, it could very well be that veterinarians really are going to be tasked with the more involved cases and less on the wellness cases. So how do we bring our nurses, our technicians 
um, along on a career development and have them take more of the things that um, they can possibly take on while we work on how do we bring people into the profession. And, and though we've gone over the, you know, the, the really hard parts of this profession, I just want to make a shout out that it's actually also quite a beautiful profession. Yes. Um, you know, there's nothing like um, being there when someone needs you, when an animal needs you and, and, and helping them through, even if it's not successful when you are there with somebody and you can see them through one of the hardest points in their life, that's incredibly rewarding. Yes. And we have to remember that um, many times people come to us and, and they are upset. It's not an excuse for abusive behavior and that happens on its own, but there are many times where people are just really scared. And so having the right tools to help them through is, is a beautiful, is a beautiful uh, gift. We've been talking about the mental health crisis in veterinary medicine and just now about why people stay in it and what it can do on a positive level. This is a fundraising period for, for many public radio stations, including KQED. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let's continue the conversation with caller Charles in San Francisco. Hi, Charles. Hi there, guys. <clears throat> so my husband and I, we have gotten two beautiful dogs from the San Francisco SPCA. Uh, unfortunately, one has passed away, Ginger. Sugar is still with us. And I just wanted to say, you know, they've always received their care at the, at the San Francisco SPCA, and you guys have been fabulous. And mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you because you guys, that's my little, fur, those are my fur babies, and we love them. So thank you for everything that you guys do. And I am so sorry to hear that you guys are going through this type of turmoil. So thank you. Well, thank you, Charles. And, I, and I'm sorry for your loss as well. Such a nice comment. Um, let me go to Ken in San Francisco next. Hi, Ken. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Ken Gorsuch. I'm a veterinarian in San Francisco, and I really appreciate what uh, this panel is discussing. Um, I personally know probably uh, six or seven colleagues that have uh, committed suicide, so it's really close to my heart. And uh, I've dealt my own mental health depressions, uh, chronic depression. And so I, when I was younger, and I, I wished there was support groups out there uh, at that time, but I'm really glad to find that they're now becoming part of the whole wellness track of the profession. And I'm, I participated with the Veterinary Mental Health Initiative in a peer-to-peer -peer counseling, and that was really a wonderful way to just be able to share my anxieties with other veterinarians in a, in a really positive way. So I just want to thank everyone on the panel and if there's any other suggestions they might have for individual veterinarians that are uh, suffering at mm. this point. Well, Ken, I, I thank you for sharing that. And, and also so sorry that you've lost so many friends. Melanie Goebel, for Ken, any, any thoughts you might have? Or, and also Susan Cohen as well. Melanie first. So first, thank you for coming on to say hi, Ken, <laughs> um, and to share your story. Um, the biggest thing I think we can do is be present for each other, whether it's in the Vets for Vets forums, whether it's the Not One More Vet forums, whether it's the MCVMA forums, you know, we are here for each other and we we are at a point that we have to say that it's okay to not be okay. And when we can say that it removes some of that stigma, it also removes some of the need to be perfect all the time. 
Uh, we are a we are a group that feels the need to be perfect, and we can't be. Um, so when we get that part of ourselves, if we let that part go, and say, you know, it's okay to just be the best I can be in any moment, that's the way we're going to start to change the face of the per- the profession. Um, and being there for each other and to be able to say we're here. And Susan, you wanted to say something as well. Dr. Cohen. Thank you for the opportunity. I second everything that uh, Dr. Wool just said and Dr. Scarlett. I think we need to prepare people for this profession before they ever start vet school so they know what they're getting into. And then as there are different levels of care and support. You can always be a friend, whether you're a client or a coworker, you know, and as we've heard from um, others, just reach out and say, how's your day going? Uh, can I give you a hug? Whatever that person needs. And then if they need more, they can find one of our support groups from any of our organizations. I, I know the Vets for Vets program best, but there are lots of good ones out there. And if you need more, if you need medication, if you need psychotherapy, get it. It should not have the stigma after all of these years that it's had. But we can all um, do our part, I think, to help each other, whoever we are, have a better day. Mm. Well, Mike writes, my vet came to my home to euthanize our 14-year-old German shepherd. The vet had provided amazing care for our dog. She was weary and sad. She'd lost a friend, too. I gave her a bottle of wine and a hug of thanks, but given all that's faced on top of personal difficulties related to COVID, my thanks were not enough. I'll be sending my vet flowers. Thank you for this reminder that we all need to do more to thank everyone who cares for our pets. I'll never forget this reminder. My thanks to all of you for this reminder. I, I share Mike's sentiment. Dr. Melanie Goble, Dr. Jennifer Scarlett, Dr. Susan Cohen, and Dr. Cherise Sullivan. And listeners, we will have sources for help on our website. And if you would like to learn more, my thanks to Grace One for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.